And this was actually the first accident in a string of accidents that led me into the computer gaming industry. Our guest today is responsible for the art in some of our most treasured video games, from Melly Island to the Lost City of Atlantis, X-Wing to Iron Man, all bear the hallmarks of his brushstrokes and his pixels. Here to tell us about his history in video games today is Mark Ferrari. Welcome, Mark. Hi, how you doing, Neil? I'm great, Mark. It's great to have you here. Now, what came first for you, Mark? Was it the computers or was it the art? It was definitely the art. Mm-hmm. Um, my trajectory into this industry and out of this industry have been about as oblique as they get. Um, I became a commercial artist late in life after a number of other careers. I was, uh, I think, in I think I was thirty years old when I first displayed science fiction fantasy art in public, and it was a really odd weekend. Uh, it was the first time I had ever attended a science fiction fantasy convention. I hadn't even known that they existed much less what they were before then. But I had been reading science fiction and fantasy for years, and when I decided to become an artist, uh, in in fact, when I decided to become an artist, I became a fine art landscape artist. And then I decided to go to art school. I felt that I could learn so much more. The fine art landscape was going really well. In fact, the work was already selling well, but I, I wanted an art education. So I applied to California College of Arts and Crafts in Oakland, and in order to get in, I had to write a statement of purpose with my application. And in that statement of purpose, one of the things I wrote was, I am hoping to find a direction for myself here at the school. The only thing I know for certain at this time is that I do not want to be an illustrator. I wrote this because I had a completely incorrect understanding of what illustrators were and did. I thought that illustrators were people who did little black and white ink drawings for the want ads and assembly diagrams for blenders and bicycles, and I just wasn't interested. My second semester at that art school, everything I wanted to register for was closed by the time I got to register, and the least boring thing left that I could sign up for was a survey of illustration class. So I took it under protest because it was the least odious choice. and. When I got into the class, believe it or not, 30 years old, having been reading science fiction and fantasy for years, it had never occurred to me until the first day of that class that every single image I had ever seen anywhere in the world that was not a photograph had been done by an illustrator. It's just astonishing how you can be looking at things in front of you and not see them for that long. But by the time I left that class, I realized that illustrators could draw anything they wanted, in any style they wanted, using any medium they wanted, and they would not only be free to switch around from style and medium to style and medium, but they would be required to. It was going to be the freest approach to art I could possibly get. So after two semesters of art school, I was $14,000 in debt, had learned all I could afford to learn about art, and left school to become an illustrator. Okay, so, so you, were, you were certainly more well-equipped then when you came out and ready to... I certainly was. Even after two semesters, I was more equipped. But I, I kind of begin with that shaggy dog story to kind of illustrate, quote-unquote, <laughs> the point that pretty much everything I've done in my life, I fell into backwards by accident. There has been very little intent to go anywhere I've gone, very little actual training or previous trajectory to 
explain or justify the places I've ended up. My life has been one long accident. <laughs> and this was actually the first accident in a string of accidents that led me into the computer gaming industry. Um, a few months after I left school, I took my portfolio of drawings, almost all of which were fantasy subjects, out and around looking for work. And I actually found a job with Chaosium Gaming doing a book called S. Peterson's Field Guide to Creatures of the Dreamlands, 30-some-odd full-color, full-page illustrations uh, for a book was a very good first job. And I took those drawings and brought them to this science fiction convention along with my portfolio pieces. Never having been to a convention, never having known they existed, I got there to discover that this art show was filled with work by many of the leading illustrators in the country at that time. These days, Comic-Cons are about the only science fiction fantasy uh, conventions that are very large and where any real business or networking goes on between professionals. The regional and local conventions have pretty much become, you know, uh, veterans parties for old fans. Uh, but at the time I got involved, these conventions were still the place where all the big business was done. All of the art directors and editors and illustrators and publishers and agents were at these conventions doing business. So just to give so us a, a bit more context, what sort of year are we talking about here? When was this happening? This would have been 1987, I believe. Okay. Okay. And the convention was in San Diego, California. I'm sorry, San Jose, California, uh, very near San Francisco. And when I saw who I was competing with or displaying alongside, I was mortified because I was a few months old. As, an as a commercial illustrator at that point, and these guys were the masters of the field. So I put my work up on some panels in a back corner, hoping no one would notice, figured I would just sneak out and come back and collect them at the end of the weekend. But I worked then in a strange medium. I didn't know it was a strange medium, of course, but it was, it was colored pencil. I did all of my work in colored pencil. It didn't really look like colored pencil, the techniques I was using made it look kind of like a painting, except that it obviously wasn't. I chose that medium because I could get really fine detail because I never had to wait for things to dry uh, or never had to work quickly before they dried. There were a whole lot of kind of inhibiting dynamics with liquid media that I just really sidestepped with colored pencil. So Everything I'd done was in this medium, and as I was hanging it, somebody came up behind me and said, is that, a, is that a, an original? And I said, yes, it is. And I said, what's it done in? And I said, colored pencil. And there was this silence. It was a woman, and she said, wait right here, and left. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'm, I'm using an illegitimate medium. I'm about to be kicked out of the art <laughs> show here. So I kept hanging work, and she came back, a few minutes later with a fellow and said, I wanted you to see this. It's colored pencil. Well, the guy she brought back turned out to be Tom Kidd, an illustrator, a very notable illustrator from the East Coast, who was the artist guest of honor at the convention oh, that wow. weekend. Okay. And he was extremely interested in what I was doing with colored pencil. He'd never seen anything like it. By the next morning, he had called about a dozen of the other most notable illustrators at the convention together for a breakfast meeting where I was invited to come tell them all how I did this with colored pencil. 
I had started working in colored pencil because it appealed to me, but I hadn't known enough about commercial art to realize it was even an unusual medium. Uh, to make a already too long story short, I will just say that by the end of the weekend, I was extremely surprised to have won best of show in the professional category at that art show. Oh, wow. A and few months into your career. A Incredible. few months into my career, the weekend of my first convention, I won best of show. It is entirely possible that that happened because I was working in colored pencil. I mean, it was a nice piece of art, but I'm not sure if it had actually been a painting. Anybody would have reacted to that image the way they did. And sure. after that, Tom Kidd, who was very gracious about the fact that this little upstart had won best of show and he, the guest of honor, had not. Tom Kidd was who actually in, introduced me to Gary Winnick, who was then the art director at Lucasfilm Games, and said, hey, here's a new guy you've never heard about. His name's Mark Ferrari. And Gary had looked at my work during the weekend and asked me if I wanted to work for Lucasfilm Games. So this is the first weekend of my career, basically. And now I'm being invited to work at Lucasfilm Games. And here is what I told Gary. I said, yeah. I would love to work for Lucasfilm, but I am a dyed-in-the-wool technophobe who has never touched a computer, and I'm really not sure I'm your guy. I had never owned a computer. I had never played a computer game. I actually did not know there were computer games. You have to remember, this was 1987. Sure. Com computers were new things. Most people actually either didn't have a computer or had just gotten one. Only people at the very forefront of certain fields that involved this kind of technology or this need for uh, communicate. You know, if you worked at a university, you knew what a computer was because people were starting to use them there to communicate or to, you know, to compile and organize and uh, access data. But most of us civilians, we'd heard of computers, but Sure. It had nothing to do with our lives. So even though so, this opportunity that came up was to do with computer games, it was really the, the weight of the Lucas name that made your ears prick up and, and take interest. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, I mean, I, honestly, I was talking to the art director of Lucasfilm. I sure as heck knew what Lucasfilm was. I mean, Star Wars had been kind of a transcendent experience for me, as had every as it was for so many other people. So I. I knew who I was talking to, but I knew nothing about computer games. And this seemed to me so important that I didn't dare misrepresent myself, embarrass myself and kill myself stepping right into my career. So I made it very clear to him that I knew nothing about computers, didn't own one, had never touched one, frankly was intimidated by the idea. And therefore, as much as I would like to work for Lucasfilm, I'm not sure I'm your guy. Gary's response to that was, we have had a lot better luck finding good artists and teaching them to use a computer than finding computer technicians and teaching them to be artists, which made sense to me. It really does. Yeah. So he said, look, why don't we just make an appointment to have you come out and do a test on this tool called D-Paint uh, and we'll see how you do. And if it looks like you're trainable, then let's talk about hiring you to do artwork for our computer games. Okay. So when they say, come out and show us what you can do, where where was it you were coming out to? Where were you going for this interview? Skywalker Ranch. I was hoping you would say like the Marin. famous Skywalker yes. Ranch. Okay. That is where the computer <laughs> games uh, department was. 
in a cluster of faux farm buildings, uh, walking a short walk from the Victorian mansion where the uh, where George Lucas's executive offices, his personal library, and the lunchroom were. Um, it was a beautiful place, but. Uh, so I went home that weekend with a potential job offer from Lucasfilm and uh, an invitation from Tom Kidd to come to New York to meet some publishing art directors. Um, and honestly, I wasn't quite prepared for a lot of that. I mean, I was still just getting started. I had assumed that I would have years to hone my skills and fill a few gaps in my knowledge base and you know, I and now this giant train had come through in the first weekend and I could either grab a hold or let it go by. And I grabbed a hold, but I, I couldn't really climb on board the train. I was mostly kind of hanging on to the outside, flapping in the wind <laughs> as it kept going. So I was it, it was a it was an awfully abrupt way to begin. So I went home to my parents house um, after that to tell them that I had just gotten a potential job offer from Lucasfilm and found out that my father, who was a junior high school teacher, had recently purchased an Atari computer and had a painting program on it. I had no idea. So my, my father had one. I didn't, <laughs> but he did. So I sat down on this computer and opened his painting program. I don't even remember what the program was. It may have been some version of Corel Draw or something. I don't know. But in those days, the painting programs were all very similar. They were very simple. They didn't have a tiny fraction of the buzzers and bells. There were a few basic functions, and they all had them. So I spent that evening on his painting program learning about palettes and pixels and the pen tool and the pencil tool and, you know, some things like this, trying to come up to speed with the, the, the basic concept as quickly as I could. And I, I, it was only a day or two later that I ended up driving out to Marin and giving my name to the guard at the shack at the completely inconspicuous entrance. It's, it's off of a long, wide, curving country road and if you didn't know where you were going you'd have no idea you had arrived it just is it's an inconspicuous gravel driveway on one side of the road and if you hadn't been told what the address was and what you were looking for you'd drive right by it so uh, in those days Lucasfilm was as heavily fortified as it has ever been um, and you must have entered with some with some anticipation and some anxiety were you nervous you know, it's funny. I don't remember being I don't I certainly wasn't nervous about going to Lucasfilm. OK. Um, an awful lot of my success in life has had to do with being so clueless going <laughs> through. You have to know a certain amount, I think, to get anxious in that way. You have to have some backlog of reverence and anticipation. I was so out of everything and have tended to be most of my life that I go to these things without one of the famous illustrators that I was invited to breakfast with um, that first morning at the convention by Tom Kidd was a guy named Frank Kelly Frizz. He's no longer alive, but at the time he was one of the grand old men of illustration. I mean, he'd done album covers for a lot of famous rock bands and, you know, he was a standard Pulp Fiction and uh, science fiction uh, book cover artist. I mean, 
you know, he he was a grand old man. And when I when people introduced me to him, I said, pleased to meet you, Mr. Frizz. What do you do? <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> and he was very gracious about that fact. In fact, I suppose that some of them thought it was charming that I was this clueless. But I approached Skywalker Ranch in Marin pretty much the same way. Yes, I'd seen Star Wars. Yes, I knew what Lucasfilm was. But I wasn't the kind of fanboy who had followed them. I didn't read Cinefix magazine like my younger brother did. I didn't know the names of all the people who had helped invent the computerized effects uh, machines and instruments that had been responsible for that movie. I didn't know any of this stuff. I just knew who Lucasfilm was. So, no, I wasn't actually nervous about going to Lucasfilm. I was very nervous about whether I would be able to do anything but stare at the computer when they set me down in front of it. But Lucasfilm itself, I was just curious. And of course, I have to say that when I got there and it was a gravel drive of unremarkable appearance, that was hardly overawing. The guard shack, well, there was a guard who wanted my name and that was interesting. But again, it wasn't a fancy guard shack. It was just a guard shack. So I... It isn't until you followed that winding driveway much further in that you got to this beautiful valley with a lake and a lot of manicured trees and a big Victorian mansion and a cluster of farm buildings and a faux winery off in the distance <laughs> that was their post-production facility. It wasn't until you got there you thought, oh, this is really nice. So basically I sort of bumbled around and found my way to the games buildings where Gary met me and they sat me down in front of D-Paint, which fortunately was not that different from the program I'd been using before. Mm -hmm. And uh, they told me that they wanted me to draw anything I wanted here. They didn't tell me what to draw. So I drew this kind of scene of a, of a grass hut on African veld with those sort of broad horizontal African trees you always see behind pictures of giraffes, whatever they're called. Um, I just sort of did that. Of course, in those days, D-Paint was an EGA tool, which meant that there were 16 colors. You couldn't change those colors. They were prefixed. So this was on a, on a PC then that you were doing it? This was on a PC, yeah, yeah. yes. yes. Lucasfilm in those days was a PC company. Mm -hmm. There were PC companies and there were Apple companies. Later on, Lucasfilm ceased to be a PC company and became an Apple company. But at that time, they were still a PC company. Um, that's going to be relevant later on in our conversation, I'm sure, because once I started doing this, uh, you had to have a you had to have multiple computers because your clients might be on one platform or they might be on the other, and there wasn't any crossbreeding between them in those days. So you had to you had to have a bunch of different computers so you could work. You could do the work on the computers in the file formats that your client needed. It was, it was really steampunk in those days. So he sat me down in front of the computer and I drew this picture. And the hardest parts for me, I mean, again, I was a colored pencil artist who had chosen that medium because of all of the fine detail and the rich color that I could get out of this medium. So now I'm working in a medium with pixels that make detail of any fine degree impossible and 16 horrible colors that I couldn't change. And to me, everything I did looked horrible. 
um, it was a giant step down from the kind of imagery that I had spent a lot of time learning to create and enjoyed creating. And this is a thing that people don't realize about the early days. These days, we have pixel artists who are passionate about pixel art because of the pixels. It has become, is becoming an art form. In fact, I believe it's becoming very possibly an art movement that transcends gaming itself. And I am actually looking forward to talking about that later in our discussion. Uh, but these days, pixel art is pixel art for artistic reasons. People choose to use pixels because they like pixels. Some of us earliest pixel artists who have become legends in the pixel art business, most of us were traditional illustrators not pixel artists, and most of us hated pixels. Most of us did everything we could with pixels to overcome the limitations of pixels and make them look as little like pixels as possible. How quickly then were you thrust into your first LucasArts game that you had to work on, or Lucasfilm? I, you know, I don't think it was more than days before mm-hmm. I started work. Um, so uh, my first job was Zach McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders. Mm-hmm. And what were your duties on that game then? I was responsible for a significant portion of the background art. I was basically hired as a background artist. I was not an animator, nor did I really have any interest in being an animator. And I was much stronger as an artist at environments than I was at figures then. I really still am. Mm-hmm. Uh, much, much. I mean, like I said, I started out in fine art landscape. The place had always interested me more than the people. Don't ask me why. Probably says something profoundly psychological about me, but there we are. So I was hired to draw backgrounds and I was responsible for a large number of them in Zach McCracken. Now, the interesting thing is that when I did my test, having experimented for a few hours on my father's Atari, I actually did a great deal of dither in that test piece just to try and mix up the horrible colors I had enough to get anything like the right colors and the right shifts in value and hue and things to make this drawing look at all credible. I had no idea that I shouldn't go, and and I'd been hired, so I had no idea I shouldn't go on doing it that way. When I sat down to do my first backgrounds for Zach McCracken, I did the same thing. I began using a lot of dither, to try and soften these garish colors into transitions that were more appealing to the eye and conveyed more sense of atmospheric perspective and things. And I got, I don't know, maybe one of those environments done or maybe two before Ron Gilbert and a little herd of agitated programmers came running into my office. I shared, I actually shared Gary Winnick's office. I had a desk in the art director's office. came running in to tell me that I mustn't, mustn't, mustn't use dither because dither didn't compress. Well, I had no idea what that meant. Somebody had to explain to me that every single one of those pixels was a bit of data and that every time the picture on the screen changed color from one pixel to the next, that meant that they had to mark that change on the disk with another bit of data and that when I did checkerboard dither like that, one picture could fill up their entire floppy disk. So we really just needed to use solid EGA colors, fields of solid color, please. And I thought, oh, you're kidding me. So seriously, I have to make these backgrounds out of these 16 horrific colors. 
and just undiluted by themselves? And they said, yep. So if you look at Zach McCracken backgrounds, I was allowed to use horizontal stripes. I was allowed to use a single stripe of one color and above it a single stripe of a different color because the way that these changes in color from pixel to pixel were scanned was horizontally. So a horizontal line of a color counted as one bit of data, but a vertical shift in color counted as one bit of data. So I started, you'll notice that my Zach McCracken backgrounds are full of skies and walls and other things that start in one color and then there's a transition of horizontal stripes to another color. This was the only way I could get a fade between one color and another. So where do we go next then? Zach McCracken, what were the next games you worked on for Lucas? Well, there's a thing in between Zach McCracken that's very important to the next game we went to after this. Okay. I finished all of those backgrounds for Zach McCracken in these horrible solid EGA colors. But at home, using D-Paint on a PC that I had gotten so that I could work at home as well. Um, at home, I was still using D-Paint to draw nicer pictures full of dither. And toward the end of Zach McCracken, I had drawn a piece uh, of sort of receding crest lines of hills heading toward a twilight sky with a rising moon and live oak trees in the foreground. It was a really beautiful piece. It was a time of day and a, a lighting condition in that view that the very limited EGA palette lent itself to very nicely. The same palette and the same kind of view coincidentally that we opened The Secret of Monkey Island with in the EGA version. I had been done, doing this lovely little dithered picture at home and at the end of the Zach McCracken project uh, one day, just before I went off to lunch, I just put that picture up on my monitor and left it there when I left the office as a kind of silent protest, basically. <laughs> By now, the conversations had all been had. I understood that we couldn't do this and I understood why. But I still put that picture up there as a way of just saying, without getting in an argument, just saying, our games could look like this. Now, lunch was not a short affair on Lucasfilm because at lunchtime, you went to that Victorian mansion into this beautiful kind of conservatory room where the most amazing spreads of food were laid out for you to do. And as you sat there with your friends at a table eating, 10 or 15 feet across that room, George Lucas or somebody else was sitting with the Rolling Stones or Huey Lewis or Leonard Nimoy or, you know, people like that, Linda Ronstadt. They were just a few seats away. It was understood very clearly by everybody that although you could see these people and they could see you, they were not actually in the same room or the same world. <laughs> you were not going to you were not going to pay attention to them and they were not going to pay attention to you. Nobody had to explain that. Not it was sure. just obvious. But still, lunch was so tasty, so visually attractive and so interesting that nobody went to lunch and was back in 20 minutes. I was probably gone for an hour and a half before I came back from lunch that day. And when I came back from lunch that day, I found Ron Gilbert in what I like to diplomatically call a very animated conversation with Steve Arnold, who was the head of the games division at that time. They were standing in front of my computer, having this animated conversation about why exactly Dither didn't compress or couldn't compress. And within a few weeks, 
dither could compress. Oh, beautiful. So, Beautifully laid yeah, trap that worked to perfection. <laughs> I did. I put out a squirrel trap that succeeded beyond my wildest dreams. So by the time we started on the next game I worked on, dither compressed and we had all agreed that this game would be full of dithered backgrounds and dithered artwork that next game was loom uh-huh. which you have the box of uh-huh. on the yeah. table yeah. and in fact that's that's colored pencil work by me on the cover of that box oh it is so, is it? Uh, so that's yes, an example of what you were talking about at the exhibition yeah i mean it's hardly the most extraordinary example of my colored pencil work but it's colored pencil no and it's a great example because i'd never stop to think like you said never stop to think that's colored pencil. exactly yeah not what people imagine when they think colored pencil yeah. and i could give you a whole nother talk on how to do that with colored pencil but it's not <laughs> what we're here for so i'll skip over it now so loom was the next thing and we had a big sort of art meeting and uh decided that, A, yes, this would definitely be our first dithered game. So, Mark, just, you want to use dither, go to town. (laughs) Uh, B, we decided to sort of uh, let our art style for that game be inspired by the work of Ivan Errol. He was the background artist who did all of the backgrounds for Disney's animated film Sleeping Beauty. Um, He had a very distinctive style. Trees and, and, you know, organic shapes were all in these kinds of swooping geometric very stylized patterns shadows and highlights and things were all done in in beautifully laid out uh, fields of solid color there were very few dithered transitions in ivan errol's work so a lot of things about his look really seemed to lend themselves to the technical limitations of what we were doing and yet still be beautiful so those were the decisions we made and i sat down to work on loom and Loom's backgrounds looked like no backgrounds in an EGA computer game had ever looked. In fact, the game ended up winning a number of awards because some people actually thought it was a VGA game. VGA was not really available to computer games much in those days, but people knew what it was and they knew it in the industry at least and knew it was coming. Uh, And when they saw Loom, at first some people thought that we were using VGA because there appeared to be way more colors than the EGA palette that they were used to included, but it was really just the use of dither to produce four times, yeah. you know, yeah. eight times, maybe a hundred times the, the apparent colors. The other thing about dither in those days is the C- CRT monitors, the screen blur was so bad that you could actually use checkerboard dither and the screen would blend it into a solid secondary color for you. So yeah. we actually depended upon screen blur to finish blending the dithered work that we were doing. Um, Aside from dithering, are there any other tips or techniques that you had to work on to try and get the look that you wanted, or was dither the main one? uh, Dither was the main one then. Later on, I would discover a number of other um, really innovative techniques with D-Paint that that allowed me to do things nobody else had thought to do. We we should probably go ahead and get to that later, but uh, at the time... Dither was the big innovation. Dither was the big so, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the game was brilliant and innovative in and of itself. Brian Moriarty's whole concept of a game about music played with musical notes 
and, you know, his kind of homage to Swan Lake and all the rest of this. I mean, virtually nothing about the game design was anything like people were used to either. So this game came out a completely different kind of game with a completely different kind of design and a completely different look. Uh, I actually have no idea how it did commercially, but I know that critically it was a huge success and that a lot of people still regard it as a kind of uh, milestone, however yeah, commercially yeah. successful or unsuccessful it may have been. It certainly is. And we've also, we've previously spoken to um, George, the fat man Sanger on the show, who did some of the music in Loom. Um, and also David Fox, who worked at, what, he was employee number two, I think, at, at Lucasfilm. Right. Did I you, worked with David Fox on Zach McCracken. Okay, yeah. so you worked with David there. And did you did you ever work with George or did you, did you move about between teams or were you quite um confided to to your artistic space in that office actually in those days there weren't teams okay. there was just one team it was a really small deal in those days there were there were six or seven artists there were maybe a dozen programmers including ron gilbert and there was gary winnick there was you know there were other people doing the business end of this uh, you know, the director of the division and all of the administrative people and the financial people and everything. I, I never really, I mean, with the exception of Steve Arnold, I hardly ever met most of those people. Um, but there was just a little group of us. And while we each had tasks, I mean, my job was to do art. Some of the other guys, their job was to do animation. Uh, Ron Gilbert and his programs obviously were there to write code and implement, you know, integrate and implement all of these components. Gary was there to sort of be a liaison between those moving parts and to sort of have a overarching vision for how this game should be. Uh, there were a group of designers, Brian Moriarty, Noah Falstein, um, David Fox, you know, these people. But in the end, there was this handful of us. And while we all had separate functions, these days in a software company, you've got hundreds of people working in cubicles and you've got batteries divisions of programmers and divisions of artists and you know dozens of designers and producers and they all go about their work off in some corner of their own occasionally there's a group meeting but mostly you're in a ghetto of your own specialty uh doing your own thing not that way in those days we all had our own tasks but we were together many times a day all of us and we would have these big conversations where everybody kibitzed about everybody else's things. Everybody on the team talked about art, not just the artists and Gary. Everybody on the team talked about game design, not just the designer. Everybody on the team talked about animations, it talked about the sense of humor, the, the dialogue, the puzzles. We all talked about these things. Uh, it was a much more collaborative activity in those days. And was there the flexibility during creating a game to actually just fluidly try different things out you know rather than having to stick to a script of this is how we're going to make the game did you have periods of experimentation let's try a puzzle this way or can you quickly oh, change your background that way yeah. absolutely and all of this was because it was so small hmm. i mean well not just the teams not just the game itself which fit on i mean <laughs> <laughs> I think another big change for Loom was that we got new computers. Okay. Much larger, vastly more powerful and faster computers. They had 50 megabyte hard drives <laughs> and 33 megahertz of speed. 
what were we going to do with all that storage <laughs> space and all that speed? The entire world was so small. And this, of course, includes the art tool we were working on. The fact that that art tool was so small, the fact that there were so few buzzers and bells, so, so few features inside it to use, the fact that I could only use these 16 colors whether I liked it or not, all those extreme limitations made it an extremely creative environment to work in because you could take, not only could take, you had to take any idea you had as far as you could figure out how to take it to get anywhere. And because the options were so limited and the environment was so constricted, you actually could take any idea as far as you could take it. Any idea you try and take now in the age of Photoshop and Illustrator and, you know, 3D CAD rendering tools and all the rest of this, any idea you start with there can be experimented with and varied and taken in different directions literally to the end of your life if you want to, and you will still not have exhausted the options. Worse yet, the tools that you begin trying to exhaust those options with will disappear a couple months into your effort to explore those options. By the time you are just beginning to figure out what you want to do and how to do it, the instruments you're using to do it with will have vanished into some new generation of instruments where everything is different and all the options have changed and you're going to have to start learning it over again. D-Paint was the industry standard tool for 2D graphics for 10 years. It took yeah. me a couple weeks to learn how to use D-Paint and then I had 10 years to learn what you could do with it which is why I was able to take D-Paint ultimately further down the road to places that not even EA or the inventors of D-Paint had ever imagined it going because I could figure out how to do everything that tool could do and then I could figure out how to do things that tool was never meant to do. One of my biggest innovations with that tool, which we'll talk about later, palette shifting as an animation technique, that was the development of a bug in D-Paint. That wasn't a feature. That was me figuring out how to use a bug to do something really valuable with. So we'll get back to that. Yeah, I'm well, sure. let's carry on down that road in until we get there. So uh, Loom, obviously a great success. Where do we move on to next from there? Is that is that Monkey Island next? Yes, the next thing we did, the next thing I worked on, hmm, this might not be true. This was decades ago. <laughs> I did somewhere in there work on a kind of a, a simple little arcade, arcade game called Pipe Dream. Oh, and Pipe it's, Dream, yes. I think Pipe David Dream, Fox yes. worked I, on that also, did he not? Probably, yes. Yeah. I, uh, I did, it was either David Fox or Noah Falstein. I can't remember yeah. which. But I did, I think, pretty much all the art uh, for that game. And okay. that may have been inserted in between loom and secret of monkey island but certainly the next major game that i worked on was the secret of monkey island and of course having done loom now we were all of us very up to speed when it came to the use of dither and you know how to how to get maximum effects out of that um and everything mm -hmm. so monkey island is kind of where we took dithered ega art as far as it could go i think uh back in those days i did maybe half of the background art, maybe a little more than half of the background art in that game. Steve Purcell did the rest. 
uh, Steve Purcell, who has gone on to do much greater things. Uh, <laughs> um, and are there any of the games we've talked about so far, including Monkey Island, are there any sort of standout scenes that you as an artist are, are really proud of? Any that we oh, should yeah. look for? Yeah. What, what? Oh, yeah. Uh, in Loom, the opening sequence uh, where Bobbin is sitting up on that big granite boulder with the island in the background in a kind of twilight hour. Um, Loom was always in a kind of twilight hour. We decided that in this magical place, it was always the time between, which seemed thematically very appropriate. But the real reason that Loom was in the twilight hour was because EGA's blue palette was more useful than any of its other palettes. <laughs> So EGA actually had more usable blues than it had usable any other colors. So that's why that happened. But that opening scene, certainly um, the uh, the sort of lake of stars in space toward the end of the game, uh, the forge. I loved doing the forge. Um, reds, reds and yellows. And that was that was the weakest part of the EGA palette. But. Again, by making the forge a very dark environment where an awful lot of it was black and the reds and the yellows and the brown, which was functioning as orange. Um, when you dithered those colors together, it was able to do it. Those pictures were all kind of Caravaggio like they were all about light sources and highlights in, in the darkness. And uh, I really enjoyed the kind of underlit, firelit uh, kind of dramatic spooky character of, of those environments uh in secret of monkey island the opening scene the the melee the, the port on melee where we first see Guybrush mm -hmm. um walking into the pirate village and the you know the the twilight sunset over the horizon of the receding ocean that was just a reiteration of that original drawing that i left up on my screen that ended up convincing them all to compress dither so it ended up in the beginning of secret of monkey wow. island okay so a lot of monkey Board island's of work we, we can thank for your we can put down to your trap and we can thank you for that <laughs> yeah i mean you know i'd love to say this was all part of my brilliant plan <laughs> i had no plan what this was was part of my brilliant accident but just in this period while you're um flexing your your pixel art muscles here you're dithering your uh, on the top of your game with things like Loom and Monkey Island and really being recognized as a great artist on video games. Were there any other video games artists who, who you held with high regard who were working on other at games? Those, at that time, I was still pretty much unaware of other video games at all. And, and I actually want to say something about being recognized as a game artist. I did not realize that I was being recognized as a game artist. I knew that the games were being recognized when Brian Moriarty and Gary Winnick came back from the Origins convention with several award plaques and gave me some, I said, hey, great, thank you. And Moriarty looked at me and said, you know, this is a big deal. And I said, <laughs> well, thanks. I mean, I just didn't get it, you know. The thing is, I'm sitting in an office with a couple other very talented guys, and we're doing what we're doing because we're really enjoying doing it. We're making the games. We're we're making the best game we can because because we love story. We love telling stories. We love good humor. You know, we love. We're just making something as fun and as good as we can because it's fun to make something like that. Nobody had any idea we were working on a classic game. 
And I had no idea that I was being recognized. I thought the games were doing well. It never occurred to me that that meant anybody knew or cared who I was. So I did not experience myself as somebody who had suddenly become a legend in the business. In fact, I didn't find out I was a legend in the business until the year 2005. <laughs> okay. That is when I found out that I was a legend in the business. And the story of how I found out is very funny and I'll tell it later. Yes, please. Yes, that's please. way down the line. <laughs> so we'll carry on down this road then if, if, oh. if, if your career, oh, go ahead, yes. Monkey Island is where I discovered color cycling. Ah, yes, so, you mentioned this. Should yeah. I be explaining what color cycling is? Well, I, I know what this is, but do please explain for the audience, yes. So all animation in games at this point was done with frame-by-frame -frame animation. An animation artist working in uh, a subsidiary kind of D-Paint tool made for animation or a part of D-Paint that was made for animation would draw a frame and then draw another frame by hand and draw another frame by hand. Didn't matter what you were animating. It could be a character. It could be water pouring out of a cup. It could be a candle flame. You had to draw that movement one frame at a time. Every one of those frames had to be saved as a separate file, which means that every one of those frames took up space on those little tiny floppy disks that the game was going out on. And running that animation required processing speed. So whenever something was moving like that on screen, your game was using a lot of resources to replace those pictures rapidly in the right sequence. And there were, if your animation was too big, that took so much processing speed that the rest of the game broke down. So animations had to be very small in those days. You couldn't do anything, you couldn't do an animation where the whole screen or even a very large chunk of the screen was being replaced rapidly over and over and over again. Couldn't fit it, the art on the discs and you couldn't uh, handle the processing speed to do all that repainting of the screen fast enough. So that's how animation was done. But there was a feature in D-Paint called color cycling. You could identify any ramp of colors, consecutive colors in the in the uh, 256, no, I'm sorry, what am I saying? Uh, in the 16 color palette, uh, you could identify any ramp of contiguous colors there, establish it as a group, and then assign it a cycling speed and a cycling direction so that the colors in that ramp would replace each other. Each of the positions of those colors in the palette that position would be blue, and then it would be red, and then it would be yellow, and then it would be blue again, and this would loop. Think about a theater marquee that looks like it's got lights going around the title of the movie, but nothing's actually moving. Those light bulbs are just going off and on in sequence, so it looks like there's a light moving around when in fact there's nothing moving, just the light bulbs are changing. Well, we started I mean, everybody thought of color cycling as kind of a cheap parlor trick. They had a little demo screen in D-Paint where they showed you all the clever things you could do with color cycling, all the clever animations. And a lot of them were very clever, but mostly a lot of them were very specific. It's like, okay, that's a really clever thing you did, but now that you've done it, I can't imagine anything else you could do except what you did there. So other than that, color cycling was a way for making bands of color move across a space. And people thought, okay, that's interesting as a decoration for a science fiction computer screen, but otherwise, what would you use it for? Uh, in Secret of Monkey Island, we had scenes where there were campfires burning, 
And I realized that even with the incredibly limited number of colors that we could get the pixels to change to, we could probably manage to make that campfire look like it was animating just by changing the pixel colors in it. And we could probably even make it look like the firelight was shining on the rocks around that campfire by just color cycling some of the colors in those rocks. So we did a little bit of animation in Secret Monkey Island, environmental animation mostly here and there, that was done with color cycling, where we didn't have to draw any extra frames, we didn't have to store them on the disc, we didn't have to use processing power to play those animations during the game. So we got some free animation. And everybody thought that was really nice, especially the programmers. I mean, I'd gone from being that guy who forced us to use Dither to being that guy who's figured out how to save us some disk space <laughs> and some processing power. I was I was making up for my bad. For a, uh, a self-confessed technophobe, you talk a good tech game. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm explaining by rote things that have been explained <laughs> to me. Uh, don't ask me to innovate when it comes to code or even just to excavate when it comes to code. I'm, I'm the wrong guy. But anyhow, so I just wanted to note that Monkey Island was the first time I ever used color cycling. I did nothing spectacular with it. It was a gesture. But down the line, my interest in color cycling was going to pay big dividends. So we'll talk about that later. So how long were you at Lucasfilm then, Mark? And, and why did it come to an end for you? Well... I was there for about three years, and every day of that was enjoyable. The people I worked with were phenomenally talented and phenomenally fun. Uh, it, it, the creative stimulation from simply being around these people and thinking with them and talking with them evolved me hugely as a creative person in all sorts of ways. And of course, being on Skywalker Ranch every day and you know just eating lunch, as I've described, was a tremendous privilege. I did not realize it, but those, you know, I, mean, I couldn't have realized it at the time, but those three years were probably the pinnacle of my professional life, uh, right out the gate, unfortunately, all downhill from here. <laughs> but, um, but they were fabulous years. But after about three years, something happened at Lucasfilm. Um, for whatever reasons, George lost interest in computer games. Uh, I have no idea why exactly. Uh, there were a lot of things going on in his life, but whatever it is, computer games didn't make the cut in terms of things that George wanted to continue devoting time, attention, and energy to. So he turned the computer game division over to others to manage. And from that moment on, profitability became a much bigger issue than creativity. Up until that moment, Creativity had been everything. A great deal of money and resources were given to a lot of talented people, and they were just told, hey, figure out where you can take this and wow us. And we sort of did for a while. But after three years, the, the enterprise was turned over to others, and they had much more mechanical and utilitarian priorities. And the first thing that happened was that Lucasfilm Games became LucasArts. It was being separated from the rest of the company. The next thing that happened was that the games division was moved off of Skywalker Ranch into an all-state office building in downtown San Rafael. Doesn't it sound was inspiring. Really, 
<laughs> yeah, it was really funny. It was it was very funny because it really was a working Allstate insurance building. If you walked in the front door, there was a long hallway that took you to some double glass doors. And inside there was a giant suite of Allstate insurance offices with administrative offices in the floors above that. That's all that was in that building. Unless you knew that entering the door, and I'm, I don't know, if it's still there, I'm probably going to get in trouble for this, but what the hell? <laughs> What are they going to do to me now? <laughs> Anyhow, if you uh, if you knew the secret, you knew that as you entered the door, looking down that hallway at the Allstate offices, there was a completely nondescript white locked door immediately to your right. There was nothing on that door but a peephole. No signage. I mean, it looked like a closet. If you stood in front of that door, and I don't remember whether you knocked or rang a buzzer, but if you if you stood in front of that door and you were recognized that door was buzzed open and inside was all of Lucasfilm games, which by then was quite a much larger organization. Um, unfortunately, what was behind that door was not the beautiful cluster of farm buildings and the gorgeous lunches in the Victorian mansion surrounded by celebrities and the park-like environment of Skywalker Ranch. What was behind that door was a bunch of cubicles with a whole lot of people who were being pressed to earn more money by cutting down on all this useless creativity. In fact, during that time, a number of our designers and things were fired to make an example to people of people who cared too much about creativity and not enough about efficiency. And at that point, I had a reputation. I knew I had a reputation and I saw no reason whatsoever to continue working in a cubicle for people with that kind of agenda. So at that point, I left Lucasfilm and became a freelance uh, game pixel artist and started working for all sorts of other clients. And for many years, I worked happily and very profitably for just a wide range of computer gaming, uh, largely small companies and independent contractors. Um, so the work was forthcoming for you then as soon as people knew you were available, it came. Yes. Yes. Yeah. By that time I had no trouble. I had no trouble for many years getting work. I had started, uh, I had continued to innovate in in uh, in the kinds of ways that I realize now only a clueless technophobe could have done. Um, first of all, I started taking color cycling in places that it had never been meant to go. I started realizing, okay, by the time I left Lucasfilm, we had gone to VGA. VGA was a thing. Now we had 256 colors to work with, not 16. We had a what seemed to me a gigantic palette. And so it was possible to do something that looked like real art on screen. But once we had that many colors to work with, you could actually make all sorts, you know, up to 16 different ramps of almost any length, each with its own cycling speed and its own cycling direction. And I began to discover all sorts of ways that you could combine those ramps on screen to create very elaborate uh, environmental animation effects. I figured out how to do rippling water. I figured out how to do fire and fire light on cast onto surrounding surfaces very convincingly. I learned how to do things like falling snow and falling rain, creating the illusion of a flake of snow or a drop of rain falling across a whole environment as if the space between those was transparent. It wasn't because we didn't have transparency yet then. These things were baked into the picture, but it didn't look like they were. It looked like I had an animated sprite of a, 
of a raindrop or a snowflake moving. It looked like I had hundreds, thousands of them moving across the screen on some transparent layer, all with color cycling. I was the first guy who gave computer games the ability to do full screen environmental animation that cost them nothing in extra, uh, not only cost them nothing in extra storage space on the disk or extra processing speed during the, the running of the game, but actually saved them animation frames that they would normally have been storing and running. Hmm. So all of a sudden I made it possible to go places in computer games that nobody could go before. And that was one of the reasons that I was not short of work when I left Lucasfilm. Must have been a real, a real light bulb moment for you once you'd figured that out. It was a out. real yeah. light bulb moment. When you put color cycling, what I could do with full screen animations in color cycling with what I could do in changing the lighting of an entire scene in sequence in palette shifting, basically I had just created 3D CAD rendered real time screen graphics, except in 2D VGA 8-bit art. And for a few years, I was famous and I knew it. I mean, in the industry, never in the world that I knew of. I had no idea that anybody who wasn't hiring me knew who I was, but everyone who was hiring me knew who I was. And I did art after art after art. You will find none of it today, and here is why. First, it took a long time to do these pictures, and I was paid by the hour in those days. Even though what I was charging by hour, actually I found out later made people laugh behind their hands because they couldn't believe I was charging only that per hour, they stopped laughing when it turns out that a single picture took you know, a week and a half, two weeks to produce. Um, a lot of people ended up hiring me to do one or two really fancy scenes to spice up their game with, not a whole game's worth of art anymore because it was ju just going to take too much time and cost too much money. So for one thing, I ended up doing spot pieces. For another thing, um, an awful lot of people had me do these spot pieces as concept art for games they hadn't done yet. In fact, games they were still planning to pitch. I was often paid to do a single scene or two for a game that somebody was going to pitch because they thought that if they brought this spectacular art to whoever they were pitching it to, it would vastly increase their chances of being green lighted. I suppose if you if they were also using your techniques in a in a picture to pitch something, it would almost look like they'd created the game engine and they had something more than was That's showing right. on the screen. Yeah. There were a hundred obvious benefits in having me do your pitch art. The problem, of course, is that anybody who knew what they were doing was impressed with this pitch art and then began asking all of the practical nuts and bolts technical and financial questions associated with any game and discovered that other than this spectacular piece of art, there was really no game here, or at least no viable game. And so for many years, I became America's number one choice if you needed someone to do artwork for a game that was never going to be made. <laughs> I, I did almost exclusively art for games that were never made for many, many years. So I have vast libraries of fabulous work 
that you will never see anywhere because they never went anywhere beyond the pitch room. Oh, and needs, then, there needs to be a drive to find all of this artwork <laughs> hidden away in. Yeah, I tablets. mean, I don't, I don't actually have a lot of it anymore, but I have a lot. I mean, believe me, there's a lot that nobody sees because until recently, it was also impossible to to show them. Pixel art is so in in favor now. It's funny to think that it, it went, fell so out of favor, and even two D adventure games, the backdrops were. They were 2D images, but they were 3D rendered and then put into the games, whether they were moving And there were reasons for that. There were reasons for the demise of pixel art that had surprising reasons, actually. And I believe there are reasons for the resurgence of pixel art now. And I I hope we will get to all of that before this conversation is done. Uh, But at the time, it was just devastating for me because not only did this completely render the need to save processing or disk space irrelevant, it rendered the ability to incorporate these techniques in anything irrelevant. And at that point, as a gaming artist, the only viable way for me to continue would be to start learning the 3D CAD tools and start trying to, you know, move ahead with where the industry is going, except that there was absolutely no point in doing it. The reason there was no point in doing it is because in those ge- in those days, in those early days of 3D CAD rendering, all the artist could do was set up a big wireframe model of the scene and sort of use levers and slide bars to assign colors and lighting directions and sort of prefab surface textures to it and then press the button that said render and go to lunch for three hours while the while the algorithm drew everything. One of the reasons that I was famous as a background artist at that time had nothing to do with my innovative use of color cycling or palette shifting. It was just the fact that my artistic style, my understanding of how light and atmospheric perspective work, my understanding of composition, my sense of landscape were all so instantly recognizable and desirable that, you know, people wanted pictures, even if they didn't color cycle or palette shift, they wanted environments that were drawn by me because of what they looked like. But when an algorithm is doing all of the drawing, it doesn't matter whether I put that wireframe together or your pet monkey puts that wireframe together or some CAD jockey two months out of DigiPen school puts that wireframe together. The quality, the texture, the lighting, the use of color, everything that creates style in a picture is going to be identical. So I would have had to invest huge amounts of money and time and effort to learn a tool that would have rendered me invisible and indistinguishable from every other artist out there, which would also have rendered me not worth paying extra for. Those tools literally made it no point in my continuing. So, uh, you know, and, and they did that. I think the people who invented those tools were motivated by their fascination with possibilities, just like I was when I came up with color cycling and, and palette shifting techniques. But I think the people who paid for and adopted those tools industry wide were interested in money. And I think that they believed that once they had tools that could do the drawing, they wouldn't have to waste time and energy looking for artists anymore. They wouldn't have to pay artists who were good. Now they had a tool that would do all that for them. And as a result, for a while, computer games became airless and homogenous 
One looked just like the others. The novelty of being able to run through an environment and walk through doorways and enter spaces and explore them was enough to make those games very powerful for quite a long time. But once that novelty wore off, one game was like the next game and the next game and the next game visually and, and you know, in a, in a sensual sensory kind of way. I think one of the reasons for the resurgence of pixel art is that people finally got bored and began remembering when games had more depth and texture creatively, more mm. narrative sense. I mean, they began missing the air that wasn't in these scenes. Now, of course, CAD rendered art has and the tools for making it have become so sophisticated that artistic style is entirely possible again. And, you know, it has become an artistic medium now, not a mechanical one. Um, but, and I'll have more to say about why I think pixel art is back later, but, uh, at the time it was just devastating. So the other reason you've never seen much of this innovative work of mine is that before, while I was busy doing artwork for games that were never made, I only had a couple of years before it became irrelevant and I started working as a waiter. So, or, or at least as, at least as other kinds of artists, let's put it that way. Okay, so ultimately the, the decisions as to whether or not you needed to push further into learning these 3D tools was taken out of your hands towards the end uh, of, of the 90s into the turn of the millennium. What happened then for you, Mark? So one afternoon I got on my bicycle and I went to ride for an hour or two on a logging road outside of the town of Mendocino. And 15 minutes into that road, I came around a sharp hairpin turn straight into the grill of an oncoming truck. Uh, we totaled each other. The truck never recovered. I did recover, so I regard myself as the winner. <laughs> but it took about a year to recover from that accident. And during a lot of that year, I wasn't working. I wasn't drawing. I was just, I had some serious short-term memory issues for a while. I had migraine issues. I had a lot of broken bones that needed to mend. So I was getting to back to the point where I could walk without crutches and things like this. Um, so I wasn't really doing much drawing. And when about a year afterwards I started doing the drawing again, it wasn't going very well. I mean, I, I could see the picture in my head that I was wanting to draw just as vividly as I ever could. And I certainly knew how to go about making it on the paper there, but but it just kept not happening. I mean, things just, I couldn't get things to come out on the paper the way I was seeing them in my head. And little by little, I began to suspect that I wasn't just rusty and out of practice, that maybe something had changed about the way my head and my hand were communicating. Um, I mean, I hadn't had a severe brain injury, but I clearly had a pretty severe concussion of some kind. I still have the five pieces of my bike helmet. Uh, that thing saved my life, I have to say. I decided that maybe my illustration career was over. And I, I actually tried, I actually borrowed some money and spent some time trying to relearn these skills. I spent about 10 months. And by the end of that 10 months, my ability to render things in pencil the way I used to was even worse than when I started. So at that point I gave up and decided, you know, I've had a good career already drawing lots and lots of pictures. I've really gotten to do that. There's a big body of work out there. I'm okay with leaving this behind. I need to do something else. And 
I had always been an avid reader of fantasy fiction. Uh, I had always enjoyed writing and storytelling and writing were something that I had dabbled in from time to time thinking I'd really love to, you know, try this more seriously someday. And I thought, well, I guess this is the day. So I started working on a novel. I spent about six years writing that novel. But in the end, it was published by Tor Books in New York, and it did pretty well, actually. Um, and the name of that novel was? The Book of Joby, released in 2007, J-O-B-Y. Yeah. Um, and it's still in print today, isn't it? It's, it's well, done very it, well. Whatever in print means these days, <laughs> you can still order it these days. Despite the, the relative success of that book, which is still not only in print, but is still selling uh, and still generating fan mail from readers, uh, what ended up happening was I, I found that the publishing industry was such an unpleasant place, full of such unpleasant people, that uh, while I really, really loved writing, I really wasn't having a good time trying to navigate the world of publishing. And I began to discover that there were a lot of people who were writing who really liked my abilities and wanted my help with their manuscripts. And out of that has is still evolving a career of, I guess, what you would call ghostwriting. Okay. There are actually a number of books out there, some of which have been critically noticed that nobody knows I wrote portions or all of. And I can't say more about it now because a ghostwriter can't. Of course. I mean, the whole idea is you don't actually exist. So I actually do quite a bit of writing and uh, concept and story doctoring, concept editing and story doctoring and things for people these days uh, that never appears with my name on it. So once again, I have managed uh, to do really interesting things and profitably while remaining invisible and way off out, outside the the boundaries and you are now credited once again uh in video games 2009 the secret of monkey oh. island the the remake of it uh and 20- well yeah i'm cre- i'm credited because somebody did bga makeovers of my original artwork the okay. only artwork i ever did was the ega artwork so that so all you, these things that I'm credited in, I'm credited in because they are basically repainting my compositions and my artwork, but I didn't do any of that repainting. Okay, and how about when we come on to uh, 2017's Thimbleweed Park? This is original now new that, work by you. That I had plenty to do with, and okay. that was that was a riot. Um, so you've made some steps was, before we get there into being able to then create the art again. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, actually, yeah, right. We didn't talk about that. So (laughs) I started writing and I figured that my art days were over. Uh, And I spent years doing various writing things and uh, and everything. But uh, I also I also continued doing some digital illustration with a mouse, you know, in Photoshop. Just I mean, the thing about working in Photoshop. Is that you're not really drawing with hand-eye coordination or at least in those days you weren't because you're working with a mouse it was the it was the hand hand-eye coordination of using a mouse which i had pretty well because i'd spent all those years using a mouse doing all that pixel art so i had that but in the end all of the fine rendering things when you're doing colored pencil you're probably your hand is your hand is reflexively changing direction and pressure and stroke length and those things hundreds of times a minute it's just it's just doing it automatically. 
when you're using a mouse, you're using a mouse. None of these finer distinctions matter at all. So in Photoshop, you're doing all the fine rendering and things with feathered selections and bucket fills and gradient fills and warping tools and nudging things and resizing things and repositioning things, none of which requires fine grade hand to eye or brain to eye, hand to eye motor skills uh, or verbal skills. Um, so I had been doing some digital illustration with a mouse using Photoshop as my art generation tool, but that wasn't very fun for me because when you're using a mouse in a 8-bit pixel tool like D-Paint, that's one thing. When you're using a mouse to control such detailed work as you're doing in Photoshop, it's just tedious. It takes a long time. It looks it looks like a picture that was made with feathered selections and bucket fills and and filter tools and things like this. So, you know, it was I never achieved the kind of transcendent uh, engagement with Photoshop illustration that I did with pixel art. But eventually, Wacom's uh, Cintiq tablets, where you're drawing right on the screen with a stylus, with a pressure-sensitive and angle-sensitive stylus, at first that technology was way too expensive and frankly way too crude to really do anything for me either. But eventually, that technology became so much like really drawing on paper and so affordable that in the early 2000s, shortly after I left my last, um, oh, that's another thing we haven't talked about. <laughs> shortly after I left my last uh, software job with a big uh, subcontracting game studio in Seattle, I bought my first Cintiq monitor. And all of a sudden, I had an artistic prosthesis. Now, I could actually do all the hand drawing on this screen that I was capable of doing. And the parts that didn't come out right could be redone and redone and redone really easily. Or they could be nudged or warped or changed or fixed. So it allowed me to do as much as I could do with my hands and still get the piece all the way to commercial grade imagery. And that is what really pulled me back into illustration work. That I still have not found my style now that I'm actually doing hand-drawn work again. I still sort of go from style to style to style trying to figure out what I want my digital work to look like because the medium isn't determining the look the way it did when you're working with colored pencil on vellum finished Bristol board, or you're working with paint on canvas, the materials themselves make a whole lot of textural decisions and blending decisions. And, you know, your style comes as much out of the medium you're using. But on Photoshop, of course, you're aping whatever medium you want to ape. So uh, again, the options are so wide that nothing funnels you towards some particular conclusion. Yeah. So I'm still looking for a style there, but I'm doing that now. So you're still looking for your style, but this Wacom piece of technology is something that you still use to this day? I still use it to this day. And in fact, I've been using it now since probably 2011 or 2012. And at this point, the interesting part is that my actual drawing skills are finally coming back. Oh, wonderful. They're coming back. They're not, not because I'm restoring anything that was lost, but simply because I am. I have finally been drawing by hand enough now that some of what I had is has simply. I've I've relearned these things from the ground up again. 
well, sort of from the ground up. Yeah. So let's not the head knowledge, but the but the but the coordinative knowledge I have I have developed. I am developing enough that someday I may actually go back to traditional media on paper. Wonderful. Well, we look forward to that day. Um, let's let's turn our attention then to the the resurgence of pixel art and the popularity of pixel art because this ties. Before in. we do that, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Before we do that, there is one other chapter in my computer gaming art career that I completely forgot about. Where, that where does really this we should and, touch on? Tell me about so, it. So, so 3D CAD system art destroyed my career. Uh, and my viability as a gaming artist. And then I went on to more traditional illustration again. And then I went on to the bicycle accident and the writing career. And then in 2005, I was living in Omaha at that time for reasons that had to do with my attempt to pursue writing and the fact that I needed a more central location in the country and a much lower cost of living. So I ended up in Omaha for a while. And one week I was out in Seattle, Washington for a wedding and a science fiction fantasy convention just for a week. And while I was there, I remembered that I an old friend from my gaming days, a guy I had worked for years ago. Um, I called him up and said, hey, I'll call him John. I said, hey, John, I'm in town and uh, I'm wondering if you'd like to have dinner. We hadn't talked in 10 years, you know, since my my gaming career had ended. Said, I'm in town. Would you like to get there for dinner? He said, Yes, I would like to get together for dinner. Would you like to work for me? <laughs> and I said, Work for you how? And he explained that he really needed an 8 bit pixel artist and nobody knew how to do that anymore. Here's what I didn't know. Having been out of the industry for practically 10 years, I had no idea, once again. All my entire life story is about. The power of cluelessness, all of it. What I didn't know was that handheld devices like phones and handheld gaming platforms, these little tiny devices had become hugely popular, but they were so small that they could not handle the processing and storage requirements of the big CAD rendered console games. They actually needed artwork and game engine design like what we used to run on PCs. So now people needed 8-bit art again, 2D 8-bit art for, for these little games to fit on these little handheld devices, and nobody remembered how to do it. And this guy could not. He was now running a 300-person division of a company called Amaze Entertainment in Seattle, and he was desperate for 2D 8-bit art resources and could not believe that after 10 years I had just called him out of the blue to see if we should have dinner. So after talking with him, I decided, well, actually, this is probably a pretty good opportunity financially as well as professionally. So, okay, I'm interested in doing this, but I live in Omaha now. It's September. I have all these obligations between now and December. I have an apartment and a lease and a roommate. There's a lot of things I need to get resolved before I can take you up on this. And he listened very patiently. And when I was done, he said, I need you to start tomorrow morning. <laughs> I mean, literally tomorrow morning. So after a little bit of further conversation, I ended up on his couch in uh, Redmond, Washington. Well, actually, technically Kirkland. Um, going to work at Amaze Entertainment and living out of my suitcase until the following March. 
in March, I went back and moved out of my apartment and, you know, my roommate and I got rid of that and the roommate was getting married. So he was ready to move on. And, uh, I lived on his couch for that many months and began doing eight bit pixel art. And of course, given all the things I could do, I mean, there literally wasn't anybody in the country probably better at eight bit pixel art at that time than I was. See, this is how I <laughs> that imagine. Is no the, this, true. This I want to make it very clear. That is no longer true. Now I am surrounded by people who are better at 8-bit pixel art than sure. I am. This is how I imagine that. the life of an artist. You've done the sleeping on the couch thing at the end of your career, not not at the start where it should be. Yeah, like I said, <laughs> backwards, backwards and clueless. Here's the other really funny thing about this event. My first day at work, he started taking me from cubicle to cubicle to cubicle to introduce me to the dozens and dozens of other artists I would be working with there. They were all in their mid-20s. I was nearly 50 by that time. And as we went into these cubicles, he would lead me in. The 20-something-year-old computer artist would look up, and John would say, I'd like you to I'd like to introduce you to the newest member of our art department. This is an old friend and a very talented 8-bit artist. His name is Mark Ferrari. And these kids would go, "The Mark Ferrari?" <laughs> and I'm looking at this going, "What? <laughs> what uh, the Mark Ferrari? I I figured probably not. I figured they must be mistaking me for some other Mark Ferrari. It's actually a very common name." In fact, the reason I use Mark J. Ferrari is because Ferrari in Italian literally means smith, as in irons, <laughs> ferro, iron. Yeah. So my name is Mark Smith in Italian. There's tons of other Italian Mark Smiths out there. So my first thought was they're confusing me with some other Mark Ferrari. But then they would say, secret of Monkey Island? Loom? And I'm looking at a 28-year-old kid. I did those games 30 years ago. And I just... How the hell do you know about Secret of Monkey Island? He said, I grew up playing that game. This happened repeatedly. After a while, it was kind of like being a coelacamp that somebody had just hauled up off the coast of South America. You know that, that prehistoric fish that they suddenly found one of? It's like, oh my God, there's still one alive. It was that kind of experience. And that is where I found out that A, Monkey Island and Loom were classic games now. I hadn't known that before that moment because nobody I ever worked for told me. You know, this idea of being a legend in the business, that all happens out there. It never happens in your office. None of my employers have ever treated me like a legend in the business. Trust me. The only people who see me that way are fans who don't have to pay me. So um, that's where I found out that Secret of Monkey Island and Loom were classic games. And that's where I found out that I was a legend in the business. All those years, I'd had no idea. I was just some artist who had finally struggled to a halt. That's what I knew about myself. I was somebody who worked in my living room. That was it. That's what I knew. So that was a very interesting thing. And I worked there for, I think, probably five years. Unfortunately, unfortunately, pretty soon, all those handheld devices were powerful enough to use CAD rendered graphics and 3D you know, modeled games. And uh, my the need for me became irrelevant again, right before my eyes. I get to oh. go through this over and over History again. History repeats itself. And when it came down to having this fabulous legend in the business, this master of 8-bit pixel art in a company that didn't need any of that anymore, I became 
kind of like a venerated antique that no one quite knew where to put or what to do with. And eventually I left again. So, um, so that, that's a little episode that we had forgotten to mention. Uh, and, uh, and then I went back to the writing and then I went on to the Cintiq and the resurrection of my hand drawing skills. And now we can go on to the next thing. So Mark, these, these skills weren't, um, weren't lost. They were needed again one more time for Thimbleweed Park when they had a successful Kickstarter to create a classic um, Lucas style game in the pixel art style with the original team, uh, Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick. And you were called up. At what point in the, the in the Kickstarter, in the development of the game, were you asked to be involved? Well, it's interesting to hear your introduction because you've described a whole lot of things that never happened. Oh, okay. once again, <laughs> once, once again, the difference between who I am out there and who I actually am in here at the office. So <laughs> first of all, my skills were not needed again. None of the artwork in Thimbleweed Park is actually 8-bit art, nor was any of it created on 8-bit tools. Oh, so we'll get, to, we'll get to that yeah. in a minute. So in fact, my art wasn't needed again. What was needed again was my sensibilities. But nobody called me up. Um, what actually, I mean, all those people assumed I was dead too, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> uh, what happened was, is that, you know, I still had, I still have, you know, I mean, all those years in the business, I made a lot of friendships that just turned out to be lifelong friendships. Uh, we weren't working together anymore, but these, you know, I went to these people's weddings and their, the christening of their kids and, you know, mm -hmm. they visited our house and we visited theirs, those kinds of friendships. Well, one of those techno savant younger friends who had become a personal friend just happened to call my attention to this Kickstarter project by Gary Winnick and Ron Gilbert to make uh, a 1980s Lucasfilm game that you, you lost without ever remembering to unwrap. And I just thought that was such a great idea. Um, and I'd actually like to say for a minute why I thought that was such a great idea. As computer games evolved, they not only became airless, colorized, black and white, rendering, atmosphereless, homogenous environments, game design went from being the narrative adventure game full of dialogue and humor and puzzle solving and exploration and mysteries and characters to being first-person shooters where you basically ran down an endless, visually interesting, but endless hallway, shooting, kicking, punching, stabbing, and blowing up anything that moved along the way. So, I mean, again, those games evolved into much more interesting games. But again, in the beginning, just like in the beginning of CAD rendered art, it was just airless, soulless, homogenous, mechanical stuff. At the beginning of first-person shooters, there was no story, there was no humor, there was no creative puzzle solving or narrative thinking or meeting interesting characters. It was, it was, it was just so uninteresting. Um, obviously not to everybody because the games were hugely successful. So there, there's obviously interest to a huge number of people out there. But for people who had grown up with narrative adventure games, it was all gone. And again, I think an awful lot of the fascination for people with the new generation of games was about novelty. 
It was about the fact that it was different. It was about adrenaline rush. It was about a dopamine response to the thumb twitching reflexes that were involved. I mean, there was a lot of autonomic stuff going on uh, that made these games addictive for people, but their limited scope when it came to create creativity or story or exploration or any of those things, I think in the end, people began to get bored. People began to look and look and look for something that they hadn't done a hundred times. And, and at that point, especially not only the, not only the customers, but a lot of the 40 something year old people who now ran the industry who had grown up on point and click adventure games began to think back nostalgically about what they weren't finding anymore. When I heard about the Kickstarter with Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick's Kickstarter, I was thrilled mostly because somebody was finally going to make a game again that was about the things game used to be about. Remember, I was an artist and writer still, professionally as well as personally, when this Kickstarter began. And here was a game that was about writing and art. Here was a game that was about storytelling, not just about autonomic reflexes and, uh, and dopamine loops. So... I backed the game. My wife and I became $50 donors. And that was where I expected it to end. I just wanted to, you know, send them 50 bucks and say, good for you. I'm so happy you're doing this. And I want to follow it. And I want a copy when you're done. And a week later, I got a call from a number I did not recognize. And it was Gary Winnick. And he said, Mark, is that you? And I said, yeah, that's me. I think he may have even said, you're still alive? I'm not <laughs> sure. Maybe he said that or maybe I'm just remembering it. But he was amazed to hear from me and uh, because we had not really uh, kept in touch for – I mean we kept in touch for a long time after I left Lucasfilm and we were friends. But we just hadn't been in touch since I fell out of the industry and, and that sure. kind of art altogether. So we began talking about the project and all the rest of this and uh, – that was when it came up that, you know, was I available to do maybe a few pictures for this? And I said, you know, I, I would probably kill not a person, but like a small animal maybe <laughs> to do, to have some little contribution in this game. Um, Gary was doing most of the art at that point. I mean, really it was still a two man project at that point while it was still a Kickstarter. And what they were imagining was the simplest kind of game. I mean, they were really imagining the kind of art that we had in those games at that time. Somewhere between Zack McCracken and Monkey Island, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so we made this agreement that I would do a couple of scenes and just so that they could put my name on the box. And, you know, that would be that would be part of the shtick. But again, nothing goes according to plan. And uh, the first thing that happened was that when they had me do a sample, so they, they weren't actually working in photo. I mean, you couldn't work in D-Paint anymore. They weren't working in an 8-bit tool. They were just going to fake 8-bit art in Photoshop. Sure. So my sample pictures were done in Photoshop. You know, I mean, I, I, I changed it to the hard edge pixel interpolation mode and I made sure that there was anti-aliasing on on nothing and I reduced the resolution of my picture way down and you know I did all of these things so that what came out was pixel art but I wasn't doing it in 
remotely the same way I would have done it on an actual 8-bit tool in with an actual 8-bit palette. So I did this sample picture for them, and the minute I did the sample picture, they realized that my artwork wasn't going to look anything like the rest of their artwork. Sure. So at that point, we started talking about whether I would have the bandwidth and the willingness now to do all the artwork, all the background work for the game. Once again, not an animator, not a figure artist, and that has nothing to do with me, but the the backgrounds. And uh, I thought, why not? I mean, it was, it was, again, from this perspective, it's clear that those three years at Lucasfilm were the peak of my professional life. I understand now what magical three years those were, like I couldn't have understood at the time. Um, and this was a chance to revisit that for a moment. I really saw this as a swan song, and that is probably what it was. This, this probably is the last time I will ever be involved in any meaningful way in an important computer game. Um, but it seemed like the thing to do, so I agreed to do it, and we started out with very simple ambitions. But they were trying to make they were trying to raise three hundred thousand dollars to do this project. And by the end of their 30 days, they had raised six hundred thousand uh, dollars. And the outpouring of interest indicated that there was interest. So they began making more elaborate plans. And where things really went off the rails was when Microsoft heard about the Kickstarter and decided they were interested all of a sudden, it was announced in, at some big convention in Copenhagen, I believe, um, that Microsoft was going to release Thimbleweed Park as a Xbox game. Now, on one hand, this sounds like spectacular good fortune. I mean, here we are again, my first science fiction convention, and suddenly I win best of show and get hired by Lucasfilm. You know, we start a little Kickstarter and all of a sudden Microsoft is releasing it as an Xbox game. You know, largely Ron Gilbert's fault. He is the one who still moves at those levels of the industry, not us. But that sounds like good fortune, but it actually was, again, it was the same thing. Jumping on a train that you had not expected to catch as it goes by without slowing down, much less stopping. And there you are clinging to the outside, <laughs> you know, managing to hang on without ever quite getting in. That's where we were from that point on. We were now doing an Xbox game with a staff of four or five. Not the best model these days. And then as we went... We got well into the game before it started to really become apparent to all of us that anybody using this game on the Xbox was going to be an Xbox player who was playing a dozen other games that were all highly rendered cinematic console games. That somehow Thimbleweed Park, this point-and-click 1987 adventure game that you got from Lucasfilm and forgot to open was going to have to compete entertainment value wise and production value wise in, in the user's minds with all the other games. It just couldn't be so, it couldn't be as slow and as dull as they really were. So we were going to have to create a game that felt like a 1987 Lucasfilm game in order to meet our promise to our backers who really wanted an 8-bit game that was every bit as slow and dull as the originals. We couldn't betray them. We had to give them something that felt like what they had invested in, but it also had to feel to all these customers who weren't Kickstart backers 
it had to feel like them something that actually belonged on their Xbox games, along I mean, their Xbox machines, uh, consoles, along with all of these cinemagraphic, highly rendered games. So how did you go and about that, uh, finding that balance? Like three blind guys in the dark <laughs> during a severe earthquake. Um, we would get well along. The first thing we decided to do was add features. And this may have even started during the Kickstarter a little bit. I think they were even planning this for the Kickstarter. But we added a few features that weren't really available back in 1987. Parallaxing layers, transparency, you know, some of these things that weren't there. And we sort of explained to everybody. In fact, I Ron asked me to do a presentation at that year's GDC in San Francisco uh, about 8-bitish art, we were calling it now. It wasn't 8-bit art. It was 8-bitish art. And I explained that rather – people seemed to love this uh, presentation. I had an awful lot to say about you know 8-bit art and the Lucasfilm careers and the development of – color cycling and palette shifting as techniques and and how you could actually put I actually showed them how you could put nine different pictures in a single picture just by changing the palettes not different times of day literally different scenes you change the palette and this cityscape becomes a forest full of trees and a stratospheric cloudscape just by changing palettes none of those pixels have been changed there are no extra pieces being added to this scene I I, I went through all of that and I think people like it because of that but actually for me, it's just a horrendously humiliating several hours where I couldn't figure out how to use my laptop. I couldn't interface with the video projection equipment. I just got up there and looked like Mr. Magoo naked in a pie fight for, <laughs> at, at GDC. So I have mixed feelings about that presentation. But one of the things that I presented in that presentation was when I was talking about what 8-bitish art meant was that obviously there is a huge resurgent passion, which we'll be talking about in a minute, I'm sure, in 8-bit pixel art. But that when it came to designing a game, we probably didn't really want to go back to 1987 any more than we really, than people who go to the Renaissance Fair really want to go back to the Renaissance. If you go back to the Renaissance, you're going to remember what it smelled like. And you're going to remember how bodies looked underneath those fancy clothes, covered in insect bites and tumors and skin conditions. You're going to remember what the Renaissance was actually like. So we're not actually trying to go back to the Renaissance here. We're just trying to feel like we've gone back to the Renaissance. So our game doesn't have 256 colors. It probably has thousands of colors per screen. But it looks like VGA art looked. And our game has transparency, and it has, in places, Gaussian blur, and it has parallaxing layers. Is it the Renaissance? No, it's not, actually. We did kind of fudge on that part of the promise. But aren't you glad we did, really? So that was the kind of approach that we ended up figuring out in order to meet our promise to the kickstarting backers and still actually belong on the Xbox. And it seems to have worked. You got good a lot feedback. of people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even you, as far as I can tell, when you did that introduction, figured that A, my 8-bit skills had been involved and that B, that this was, you know, a, a pixel art game. Well, it was and it wasn't. I did it all in Photoshop with Photoshop tools. 
and I used as many colors as I needed to and, you know, all the rest of it. So we did this. But the real trouble came when we were about halfway to maybe two thirds of the way through the game and realized that even now it just wasn't going to stand up to all those other console games that people were going to, you know, be having the choice of on the Xbox. At which point Ron decided that we needed more dramatic camera angles and we needed new kinds of animated environmental features. We And this meant going back and redoing all sorts of things we'd already done. And it meant asking for things that felt... <laughs> so ironically, we start off trying to create a game that isn't actually an 8-bit game but feels like one. And we end up trying to make a game that isn't actually a console game but feels like one. So... Now, he wanted me to make a room feel like we were in a camera down on the floor and that, the, and that we were in a rotatable 3D environment, but we were actually in a 2D environment that was completely static and all of the characters moving in that environment, we couldn't create a whole new set of animation frames from that alternative angle, so they had to stay at the straight angle, but the room had to look like your <laughs> viewpoint was from somewhere else trying to sort of be in 1987 and sort of be in 2016 all at the same time <clears throat> without losing either <laughs> turned out to be something of a nightmare for everybody. <laughs> and when that project drew to a close, you were happy then to uh, close the door on video games, were you? That, yep. was, that was it for you. There yeah. it was, folks, my <laughs> swan song. Thank you so much for a, a marvelous lifetime. <laughs> Uh, bye, bye now. <laughs> <laughs> you're done. You're done. So, uh, pixel well, art in general. That's not what actually happened, of oh, course. Okay. Because now on. I've gotten very interested in pixel art because of Twitter. In in pixel art is an art movement. So, if you want to go there, we can go there. I now, do. I yes. Think. Yeah. Yeah. So, let's talk about pixel art then. In the modern day, its resurgence. Why is it so popular? Um, what do you know about it? What's happening? Are you still a big part of that? Mark, are you still very much involved in that or are you watching from the sidelines? I am very involved in watching from the sidelines <laughs> um, and really surprised to find myself there. Mm -hmm. I have been aware of the 8-bit pixel art nostalgia movement for quite a while. Um, I was aware of it actually when the Kickstarter for Thimbleweed Park came to my attention but I was not very interested in it I, because I assumed, you know, I, I was seeing it out of the corner of my eye from a considerable distance. I was other places doing other things for a long time by then. So I wasn't really paying attention. And I made the assumption that it was just a nostalgia movement. I'm, I mean, I had actually seen it when I was at Amaze Entertainment in Seattle, you know, starting in 2005. A lot of those kids had grown up playing pixel games and still thought they were super cool. The mm -hmm. way people think that the 70s disco era was cool because they didn't live through it. <laughs> um, so I assume that's all this was. Uh, and I wasn't paying attention. And then I got involved in Thimbleweed Park and that was really fun, but I didn't have time to pay attention to anything but Thimbleweed Park. So I wasn't even paying attention then. Octavia Navarro, who I think is is a leading 8-bit pixel artist these days, and I were working together on a daily basis. But Octavie's job, unfortunately, at that time was to learn to 
integrate and imitate my style in his artwork as much as possible. So mostly we talked about what we could do to his art to make it look more like mine. And as a result, I didn't really see any of his art during that time. I had no idea at the time what a talent, I mean, I knew he was very talented because he was doing a spectacular job of what I regarded as a very difficult task, which was, you know, producing elements of the scene I'm working on that actually looked like they belonged with, I mean, that was, that was something we struggled to do back at Lucasfilm. It was a struggle way back at Lucasfilm to create character animations. Now my backgrounds became so much more realistic that the character animations didn't fit. The lighting didn't work. You know, the character animators there at Lucasfilm had to struggle to create characters that looked sufficiently integrated with those environments. So I was very impressed with his talent, but I never saw any of his work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I left the Thimbleweed Park project really happy to have done it and really happy it was over and went back to everything I'd been doing, the writing, the digital illustration, you know, all the rest of this. And at that point, I decided, my wife and I decided that it was, it was getting time for me to retire, which meant that now I was going to stop taking commission and commercial illustration work and just start doing creative projects that I wanted to do. Creative people don't retire. They work till the end of their lives. The difference is that they stop asking other people to pay them for it, or more importantly, to direct the jobs. And I acquired a Twitter account, assuming once again, that as long as I was very quiet, nothing would happen there, which is pretty much what I was hoping for. But that's not what happened. I started a Twitter account, and I put some things on it, and then I walked away. And I came back the next day, actually I came back that evening, and I had 150 followers. And I thought, why? Uh, and that just went up and up and up. I think you know, like three days later I had 500 followers or 600 followers. I was doing nothing to cultivate them. They were just showing up, and it quickly became clear that they were all pixel artists or 8-bit gaming enthusiasts who had heard from somebody who had heard from somebody that Mark Ferrari had a Twitter account now. And so oddly, I was once again being a celebrity for something I hadn't done for decades and wasn't doing now. I have so little really to tell them that's current. So what happened instead by accident, because everything in my life is by accident, what happened instead was that I began seeing their pixel art. You know, I mean, when somebody followed me, I went back to look at their page. It's the least I can do. If they're going to follow me, I can check them out. So I'd look at their page and there's all this pixel art on it. That's not what I was imagining. I mean, uh, Juanila and Jubilee and Octavi and, uh, Oh, there's a there's a there's a bunch of them that I have simply become huge fans of. These people are doing pixel art that is functioning as art. It isn't functioning as game illustration, which is a fine thing. I'm not trying to put down game illustration, having done a lot of it myself. But this was art for art's sake. I mean, Juanila's stuff looks like the best of Japanese woodblock woodblock prints. Um, Jubilee's stuff is fine art landscape. Octavi's stuff is some of the most amazing narrative illustration I've ever seen. There are whole novels in every one of his pictures. And mysteriously, it's not because there's all sorts of things being spelled out in them. It's because 
Octavi has this weird, bizarre ability to put more expression of emotion and intent in a five pixel high face with a dot for each eye and a dot for the mouth or a hand that has two pixels in two fingers and is otherwise a four pixel square. He is able to convey like the great actors of Hollywood through these few amounts of pixels and the sort of dioramas he does of dramatic situations. I mean, there's such melancholy, such pathos, such delight and joy. I mean, I have basically referred to his work as the pixel art equivalent of the difference between poetry and prose. Poetry is condensed language. It's all the meaning of prose condensed down to the minimum possible words and space and images. It's removing everything but the essential that conveys all of it. Octavi's work is visual poetry. It isn't prose. It's poetry. The fabulous work that we saw from the, the world's great narrative illustrators, those were prose, fabulous prose. But Octavi's stuff is poetry, and so is everybody else's. Mm. Part of the thing that's working in that art, I think, is the fact that, once again, they are, they are working in a medium, again, that is so restrictive, that so prohibits wildly haphazard color choices or, you know, infinite amount of detail that once again, they all have to be visual poets. But here's the other part that's essential. When I did it, as I pointed out earlier, when I did it and all the other early masters of pixel art, we did it because we had to. We did it because there was no alternative and we did it resentfully. Mark Twain once famously said, I believe it was in Tom Sawyer, uh, he observes, that whatever we are not obliged to do constitutes play. And whatever we are obliged to do is work. He said the same thing in lots of other even more eloquent ways over the course of his lifetime of writing, but that was a, a recurring theme. We did pixel art back in the day because we were obliged to, because there was no way around it. We did it resentfully and we used pixels as innovatively as we could to eradicate their pixelness. The pixel artists today, nobody is requiring them to use pixels. There's no need for it. There's really, at least in the industrial levels, there is no desire for it, or at least there wasn't a desire for it before they made it new, popular again. They are doing pixels because they want to. What was work for us is play for them. And as a result, the result isn't isn't an illustration created to meet the needs of a limited technological environment for a game. What comes out is art because they're just doing it to express something in a medium that requires them to be poets. I have become a massive fan of pixel art, other people's pixel art. Uh, pixel art is evolving now into, into a cultural expression that hopefully will eventually carry meaning, poetic meaning, that transcends the contextual, the technological and gaming context of its time of origin. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And I really do hope that it gets the recognition it deserves and is hung in galleries in future. If I'm ever in a position where I have the power to do such a thing, I, <laughs> I will certainly hang it in my museum walls. But um, yeah, Here's hoping the likes of the Arts Council here in the UK do start to give it a bit more recognition 
uh, and we start to see some exhibitions perhaps i'd love, love to see that happen and likewise as well for video game music as well there are so many wonderful um compositions that really do need to be heard yeah i think that's already starting to happen and it will happen as soon as the people who love this art are the people running the world sure. and i think we're only and i think we're only five or ten years from that time Absolutely. so it's it's what's about to happen if it's not already happening. But it is exciting to me that there is a vast worldwide network um, of people who, who are doing this with each other and for themselves. I mean, that's why it's, that's why it's going to go forward is because all the people doing it want to be doing it. If this were all being done for some company or some industry, it would last as long as the company and the industry did, or at least as long as the company or the industry's interest did, and then it would disappear like everything I did did. I mean, everything I did has disappeared because the companies lost interest, not because I did. But now they're not doing it for that reason, so it's not vulnerable to disappearing as soon as the, the tech or the commercial or the advertising environment shifts. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mark, it's been a fascinating insight into your life in video games. Thank you. Uh, from myself and on behalf of everyone who's watching for all of the work that you've put into the games that we love. Um, I know at times you've described it as work rather than uh, something that you're as passionate about as as the modern pixel art that you're looking at. But it's it's wonderful art to us and we've got wonderful memories of the art that you created in these games. So thank you very much for that. And uh, any links that you want to share with us to projects and all of those artists that you've mentioned, please let me have them and everyone can find them in the video description to click on. And thank Great. you so much for so much of your time today, sir. Thank you. Uh, you're very welcome. I, I do want to clarify that I really enjoyed doing the work on those early games. I don't want to leave the impression <laughs> that I just hated doing this because it was pixels. I didn't hate doing this work. I hated pixels, but <laughs> yes. I really loved overcoming pixels. I really loved figuring out how to make something beautiful in pixels. And I absolutely loved the people I worked with and the creativity of the projects we were working on. So, uh, in case there was any doubt, I do not mean to suggest that my time working on those games was odious. It was not. The only thing about it that wasn't massively wonderful was the fact that we had to do it all in pixels.